Matthew 11, uh, reading from verses 1 to 11. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of their prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This morning, John mentioned about the culture in which we are having to function and operate in these days. And it's important that we recognize that. We're living in a time of uh, tremendous technological change especially in the realm of communication and transportation. And such are the consequences of that, that planet Earth is now called a global village. And in that sense, it's got smaller and it has shrunk. We can speak to people in other parts of the world, even quite remote, almost immediately, and they can speak with us. And through various platforms, we can see in real time fighting in Ukraine, floods in Australia, and fires in America. That's the sort of society in which we live in, because of that communication. And they can see us, what's taking place in our our country. Uh, Also in terms of transportation and the marvels of jet propulsion. We can get to the other side of the planet in little over 24 hours, if we so desire, and people can get here. And, And they do get here. And because of that, the part of the global village in which we are living is now called a pluralistic society. Plural, more than one or many. 
And so we have the case with a pluralistic society, multicultural, multiracial, and also multireligious. And many of these aspects have enriched our country and have been a great blessing. But the third one has raised questions and caused certain concerns. Because in the sense, at one time in our country, there was essentially a choice. There was Christianity, and either you chose Christianity, you chose to follow Christ, or you really were nothing or religious. But now we're living in a multi-religious society. Many of our peers and our contemporaries work alongside people from other religions. They are educated with, they're educated by people from other religions. They're served by them in shops or in hospital. And so consequently, frequently, our fellow citizens are quite impressed by the serious way in which they approach their religion, for the depth of their devotion. Oftentimes, their acts of charity has a real impact on many people in our society. And because of that, there are a number of things that have arisen. It's caused people to ask, well, is Christianity, uh, Christianity the only true or real religion? Or, or are these others equally valuable and equally valid? And they're asking these questions in this particular time. They may have heard people speaking about multi-faith services. And there you have a Jewish rabbi, an imam from, the, uh, uh, from Islam, there can be a monk for, who's a Buddhist or leaders from other religions and a bishop from the Church of England and they're all together worshipping. And therefore people are saying, well, perhaps there is no difference. Perhaps they, they all are equally valid and equally valuable. You remember our king who, when he was Prince of Wales, he wanted to be known as defender of the faiths. Not a defender of the faith as it should be in the Anglican service that he should be the defending the one true historic Protestant evangelical faith. But he wanted to be known. Defend all the faiths. Again, giving this impression, there we are. That's the type of society. So you pay your money and you make your choice or you make your choice and pay your money, whatever the case may be. And people then are asking, and there's a number of issues, important issues, highly significant issues that arise because of that. The exclusive claims of Christianity are being doubted, even dismissed or denied. That's it. That's happening today. Now, and Christianity does make exclusive claims. Neither is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. That's exclusive, isn't it? No other name, no other way, no other means. But that's being challenged in these days. Christianity says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One God, one mediator. Not many mediators, not many gods. And so, but these philosophies, these ideologies are, are gaining popularity. And then not only that, but also the uniqueness of Jesus Christ is being challenged. The uniqueness. Surely the, the deities connected with these other uh, religions, these other ideologies, have equal value and are equally viable. Some people describe, well, a relationship with God. It's rather like this. Uh, uh, God is at the top of the mountain. But of course, in a mountain, there are many paths up the mountain. And Christianity is one path, 
And of course, these other religions are other, other paths. Again, giving that impression. Or a relationship with God is like a wonderful, beautiful vase. And the vase has been dropped and smashed to pieces. And one piece is Christianity, one piece is Islam, one piece is something else. But they're all the pieces just come together and they all have their place and they all have their purpose to achieve the one great things. Now, let's be clear about it. This form of thinking is not the product of enlightenment of the 20th and 21st century. It's oftentimes presented in that way. Here's a new enlightened view. But it's not like that. Or some people would say it's the result of recent research into comparative religions. And as a result of that, we see how wonderful these others are. And they're equally wonderful as, as Christianity. But this isn't new. It goes right back to the Bible itself and to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we read in our narrative from Matthew chapter 11. Here, John the Baptist is imprisoned. Remember, John was the forerunner of Christ. He was the one of whom Isaiah had spoken to prepare the way of the Lord. But John now finds himself in prison. While he's in prison, he sends two of his disciples to the Lord Jesus Christ with a crucial and contemporary question. Are you the coming one, or do we look for someone else? Are we to expect someone else? Just exactly the mentality that exists today. Is Christ the one, or do we look elsewhere? Is he the answer to our need, or is that answer to be found in another person? Is he the one who's to meet our deepest needs and our direst desires, or do we find it in someone else? And that question is put now, it's interesting in the original language, where it says, are you, it's emphatic. Meaning, are you and you alone the one and the only one? The one who was sent uh, by God to meet all our needs. Now, when we look at this, we, we just try to analyze what's involved here. And I think there are four steps or four stages mentioned in our narrative and they are sequential. One leads on to the other. The first thing is the condition that is expressed in the question. The very fact that they're asking the question, there seems to be an element of doubt. There seems to be a, a, a lack of certainty, a lack of confidence about the Lord Jesus Christ. And surely that's what we're feeling, that's what we're facing in our society this time. Many do not know. J.I. Packer wrote a number of years ago. He says, not since before the Reformation has there been such uncertainty about what Christianity is. And that's the reality. I remember seeing the cartoon, quite a striking cartoon. And in the cartoon was a clergyman. And he had all his robes and regalia. And round his neck, as you would anticipate, there was a chain. You would, you would expect that the end of the chain would be a cross. We know that there was a question mark. And the cartoonists were saying, that's oftentimes the picture you get of Christianity today. People are not sure what they believe, or should they believe, or in whom should they believe. And this is the condition that exists today. Many people are unsure, uncertain, lack clarity, or in a state of confusion and a state of haziness about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then moving on, the next step was our Lord's reaction 
to the question, his reaction. And you notice what he says to us here. He says, go and tell John or inform John. Now, that's in the imperative. It's in the imperative. The Lord wasn't offering a suggestion. He wasn't giving them, well, perhaps this is an idea that you might do. It was a must. And the word he uses is not just sort of inform someone or tell someone. It was to be a report. This is something that's to be dealt with and dealt with uh, clearly and unmistakably and categorically. There it is. And there's a number of things here about our Lord's response. When they asked the question, he said, go and tell John. He responded swiftly and he responded with strong language. There was a sense of seriousness. He saw the gravity behind that question. And in a sense, you know, there are many things in life we have to learn to live with. Sometimes it's people, isn't it? <laughs> we have to learn. Sometimes it's even doctrines, reconciling fully the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. And we live with that, don't we? The Bible even tells us it does not appear what we shall be. That means in that eternal realm, we don't know everything about it. We know the reality of it, but it's a lot of it we're agnostic. But there's one thing we must not be agnostic about. We could never be agnostic about. And that's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why when they said, are you the one? Immediately he responds with a sense of urgency. Go and tell John. Such and such and such and such. And there's another implication here. Not only must we learn not to live with this, we must not continue in that state if we're in it. That's what the Lord was doing. He was saying to them, I hear what you're saying. I understand where you're coming from. But don't stay there a moment longer. Don't stay there. And also he was saying there is enough information, enough evidence available for you to believe. That's why he said, go and tell John. Now, if what our Lord said was more than sufficient evidence for these men and for John to believe, to clarify the con uh, their uh, confusion, to come to a position of certainty, what excuse is there for us when we have a much bigger picture, a much greater revelation of Christ, a much more glorious portrait of his person, I tell you, dear friends, none of us here this evening have any excuse whatsoever for not believing, for, for, for not believing in the Lord Jesus. That's the second point. Here it was, the, the condition, our Lord's reaction. And then the third thing, the Lord's cure or solution. It is, go and tell John, notice, what you have heard and seen. Isn't that interesting? Normally we would put it the other way around. What you've seen and heard. Because we think seeing is better than hearing, don't we? But the Lord puts it this way. Go and tell John what you've heard and seen. And then he goes on to talk about the blind being healed. The blind being their sight restored. Lepers healed. Dead raised. And then the poor have the gospel preached to them. The poor has the gospel. I wonder why he put it first what you've heard. Is he saying to us that his words, in one sense, are at least equal 
to, to his miracles. That, that, that what he said was, had the same power as what he did and what he was doing. That's how powerful his words are. And when you come to the scripture, that's the sense you get. Uh, some men were sent to arrest the Lord Jesus. Uh, and when they came to him, they didn't do it. And he went back to the masters who had sent them to arrest Christ. And he said, where is he? What have you done? They said, never a man has spoken like this man. Even his adversaries recognized the power of his words. What a thing. Others had to say, he spoke as one who had authority and not as the other religious leaders. When they would make a statement, they would call upon some professor or some great theologian in order to confirm or to give some substance to the statement they were making. Christ never referred to any other authority when it came to speaking. Why? Because his words were all authoritative. There's no higher authority than his. Isn't that wonderful? His words, he said, listen to, to, to my words. They were astonished at his wisdom. They said, he hasn't been to the rabbinical schools, the theological colleges. He hasn't consorted with those who seem to have or be custodians of knowledge. He spoke with such authority. My dear friends, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's unique in his words. I was reading some thoughts or reading some ideas about the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And someone said this, Bernard Ram, talking about they, they are read more his words, they are quoted more his words, they are loved more his words, they are believed more his words, they are translated more his words, because they are the greatest words ever spoken. Go and tell John what you've heard. I wonder, have you ever thought of the words of Jesus and looked at his words? Never has a person spoken like this person. Never. And there never will be. Because there's none others. He made a statement. And at the time, I'm sure people were flabbergasted. You know what he said? And he said quite nonchalantly almost. He said... Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. Can you imagine it? There he was. And he says it calmly. He, he, he doesn't have to get himself worked up to say it. He meant it. And the wonderful thing is, over 2,000 years later, we are considering those words this evening. They haven't passed away. And I tell you, they never will. They can't. Because they're from the eternal son speaking eternal truth. Go and tell John what you've heard. And there's enough in what he, he said and how he said it to convince people that he is the one who was to come. He is the answer to our need. He is the remedy to our situation. But then the things that he's done. So it wasn't just his message, but it was the miracles. It wasn't just his words, but it was the works that he did. Now, you notice the first thing they say, that the blind were able to see. As far as I remember, there isn't a single case of a blind person being healed in the whole of the Old Testament. Can you think of one person? 
who received this sight in the Old Testament. I hope we don't spend the whole sermon trying to think of it. I don't think there is. But when Christ comes on the scene, I think there's something like 17 references, and that's just those which are recorded. I believe there are many others that weren't. He was, a, and the lepers are healed. Is this just ideas that the Lord was plucking up, plucking out of the air at random? No. The prophet Isaiah had said when the one who was to come, the king who was to arrive, the Messiah who was to come on the scene of history, it would be accompanied by these things. And all that was prophesied about the coming one were fulfilled in Christ, accomplished by him. Accomplished by him. And then there's that little bit at the end. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. It seems almost like anti-climax, doesn't it? Giving sight to the blind, uh, healing the leper, raising the dead. It seems almost anti-climax. It's not. It wants to show us that the mighty one is a merciful one. The one with all power and authority is full of pity and compassion. There are many people in history who have been mighty in a sense, but they've been merciless. And there are many people who have hearts of gold and of love, but they don't have the ability to perform. And Christ, in a wonderful way, they came together. The Almighty One is the All-Merciful One. Go and tell John what you've seen. And there's enough there. And then, lastly, there's that conclusion, that, that benediction. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful one. And the Lord said, blessed is the person who's not offended because of me. Uh, the idea is a, a person who's not tripped up because of him. You see, John, in his mind, he still had that mentality of the Messiah coming, who would enter into history with uh, a big bang, and great military strength and power, and subdue all the enemies of Israel, and exalt Israel to its former glory, as it was in the days of King David. Now, in a sense, that is part of the picture. Part of the picture. But the other part is a suffering servant, Messiah, who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, who would be cut off from the land of the living, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And because John was only in one track, John was then now questioning, in a sense, questioning who our Lord really was. Was he truly the one who was to come? Instead of having the whole picture. And many are like John. They've got preconceived ideas about the Lord Jesus Christ and even prejudiced ideas. And that's why they won't come and believe in him. Their preconceptions are prejudiced. They've closed their minds to the reality of Christ. I remember hearing of a student in the Bible seminar seminary and he went to the principal and he, he apologized to the principal. He said, principal, I'm leaving. And the principal was surprised. said, why are you leaving? He said, I no longer believe in God. I no longer believe in Jesus. And the principal said, what do you not believe? 
And so he said various things. And then the principal says, well, I don't believe in that God either or that Jesus because he's your, in your imagination. He's not the God of revelation or the Christ of the Bible. If you're here this evening and you're keeping the Lord Jesus at arm's length or you're putting questions about him, are you sure it's not your preconceptions and your prejudice It's keeping you from looking at the truth as it is in Christ and seeing the wonder of his person and bringing you to a faith in the living Lord Jesus. That's the picture we have here. Now, I want us to fast forward to Matthew chapter 16. It shows you how old I am. I said fast forward. I don't do that, do they? <laughs> well, I'm still a fast forward man. And here's this situation. Now, do you notice the question there is, it's not from disciples, but two disciples. In, in Matthew 11, here are people asking the Lord a question about his person. But when it comes to Matthew 16, the Lord Jesus is setting the agenda. And, and he says, a two-part question. He says, uh, who are people saying that I am? And then after the answer, they go and say, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? There it is. The question is coming from Christ to people. Now, everything about this narrative is calculated to bring home to us just how significant and how strategic this encounter was. Everything. Everything about it. First of all, even the situation, the place. It's Caesarea Philippi. Now, the Lord had taken the disciples away from uh, Galilee, northern Galilee, and right over to the foothills of Mount Hermon, and right to the borders of Israel, to Caesarea Philippi. And there were two things about Caesarea Philippi which were very significant. First of all, it was its association with other religions, and we'll look at that. It was called at one time, Banias or Panias. Panias after the god Pan, half human, half animal, and he played a flute. I would say half-baked. <laughs> but there it is and there was a shrine to that and people would come to worship at the shrine Caesarea Philippi being a Gentile city there were idols everywhere to all sorts of deities and then not only that it was called Caesarea Philippi why Caesarea? because Herod the king wanted to ingratiate himself to the emperor so he called the place Caesarea he changed it from Banias to Caesarea and then, for good measure, he added his name, Philippi, Philip. But there was an altar, a marble altar, a white, splendid marble altar, where people would come and offer incense to Caesar and acknowledge him as Lord. And this place, with all these different religions and all these claiming our affection and devotion and allegiance, Christ asked the question. Look at all this. But what, what do you think of me? Who do you believe I am? Who do you believe I am? Another thing that was true of it was its comparative isolation. Now remember what the Lord had done. He took the disciples away from the ministry in which they were engaged and it was being blessed. He took them away from the mission that they were fulfilling with him and he brings them to this spot, quite an isolated spot in one sense. Why did he do that? We did it for the same reason that we do. If we have something of paramount importance, 
something of the greatest possible significance. What we do, we take a person aside. We don't want any distractions. We don't want any interruptions. We want their total and complete attention. Why? Because we want what we have to say is absolutely critical and crucial. And that's what the Lord was doing. This question about him, his person, and his work is the greatest question a man or a woman, a boy or a girl will ever have to face. What do you think about the Lord Jesus? In Northern Ireland, there's a man, and he had a great gift of um, communicating the gospel with people, even strangers. And how he commenced, he always wore a question mark uh, made of silver on his jacket. And of course, when people sit in the bus, they'd look. Second take. Uh, you know, curiosity is an amazing thing, isn't it? Uh, and then somebody said to him, What's that? He said, It's a question mark. And so I said, Yeah, I can say it's a question, but why? He said, Well, it's, it's a very important question. He said, What's this very important question? Who do you think Jesus is? Or what will you do with Jesus? A very important question. And that's why the Lord takes them to this special place. And then even the questions themselves. We oftentimes use questions. And there are basically three reasons for putting questions. We put a question to someone to get information, to obtain information. Maybe we're going on a journey or we want to know something about a place. We ask about that place. Have you been there? And then the second thing is to give information, what we call a rhetorical question. You know, someone's doing something wrong, and you come and say, what are you doing? Well, you know what they're doing. <laughs> In a sense, but there you are, you're trying to, as it were, uh, get that information from them about what, what, what they're doing. And then the third thing is, it's oftentimes it's to test people, have they really understood what you've been teaching? I sympathize with Martin today very much. <laughs> You know, I've been teaching in Eastern Europe, and maybe after a two-week module, I always had to set an examination. Now, hopefully, I knew the answer to the questions. I wrote them, (laughs) hopefully. But that wasn't the purpose. It wasn't even the purpose to give them a pass mark, although there's some value in that. I wanted to see how they understood, how they really understood what I'd been teaching. Had they come to grips with the ideas and the concepts and had the truths and the concepts taken a grip on them. I wanted to know that. And I found out by putting an examination paper, I could find those things and discover those things. In a sense, the Lord was asking the questions to these people. He knew the answer. He knew the answer. But he wanted them to express what was truly deep down in their heart, what had really gripped them. They had watched him for a number of years. What a thing to watch the Lord. They had witnessed his power in performing these miracles. They had listened to his words, those marvelous, authoritative words, those words that will never fail, all of those things. He wants to find out what impact it's had upon them. Now, in a sense, it's a two-part question. He said, what do people say that I am? Or who do people say that I, the son of man, am? And you know, we might be used to the answer, but we shouldn't. Some said, John the Baptist, 
Meaning to say, he was like John the Baptist raised again. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Can you imagine? They saw in one person all these mighty ministries and all these marvelous personalities in one person. Isn't that amazing? John the Baptist. The, the influence which he exerted in his ministry right across society. If you ever get a chance of reading Flavius Josephus' history, he has a big section on John the Baptist. Such was the impact of John, John the Baptist. Even kings feared him. He made them tremble when he preached. Would we had more John the Baptist in it? And then Elijah, a man who suddenly appears on the scene. God uses him to confront the nation, to rebuke kings, to face the adversaries of God, the prophets of Baal and so forth. Hundreds of them alone up on the mountain apparently. Imagine they saw that fearless character of Elijah. Jeremiah, that tender-hearted, weeping prophet who shed tear after tear over Israel in this lamentable condition. They saw it all in him. Can you imagine this? Say there's a sportsman came along. I think it's the World Athletics Championship. And could you imagine a commentator announced it? This chap runs like Hussein Bolt. He swims like Michael Phelps. Eight gold medals. He rides a bike like Chris Hoy. <laughs> it would not just be in the back page, it would be in the front page. Or in terms of writing. And there's a new author comes along and, and he produces his first book and all the critics are saying, oh, he has the insight of Shakespeare. He has the storytelling capacity of Dickens. He has told, told oh, his descriptive, descriptive genius. And it, when one person, it's marvelous. Or in terms of music, here's a musician come, or uh, a new person composing music. They say he's like a maestro, the same as Mozart. The subtlety of Dvorak and Tchaikovsky's and, and Beethoven's brilliance. People would be astonished. Well, that's what it was like when they said, he's like John the Baptist, he's Jeremiah, Elijah and the prophet. And I can imagine if it was us, we say, oh, they've arrived. They've understood at last. The Lord said, no. Well, he says, but what about you? And but is an adversative conjunction. What it means is, in opposition or con uh, different to that, an alternative to that. In other words, what was he saying? Don't place me in any earthly ca category or any human category. I far exceed that. I'm in the class of my own. There's not another like me. There never will be another like him. Have you seen that? Can I ask you tonight, have you seen it? There's no one like you. No one like you. The incomparable. The unrivaled. The altogether lovely. The all-powerful, majestic. Lord Jesus Christ. That's him. Wonderful thing that we have here. Um, I had a wonderful blessing. James sent me a, uh, 
an email about the service and it said from 6 p.m. to 7, but he didn't put a p.m. after the 7. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? I thought, James, what latitude you've given me. <laughs> but you know the wonderful thing? In the Jews, there were three things which were the prerogative of God and God alone. Things that only God can do and no other could do. And one of these was forgiveness of sins. There's a man who was paralyzed and his friends brought him to the Lord Jesus. They couldn't get access to the door. They went up the side of the house and opened the roof and let, let this man down. And this, I think they were expecting that Christ would say to him, man, get up, as he said with other people, arise. I said, you know what he said to him? Your sins are forgiven you. That shocked the Jewish people more than anything. And they rightly deduced, who can forgive sins but God? They were right. And the Lord just calmly says to a person, your sins are forgiven you. I have that power. I have the prerogative that only God has. And he does it so calmly. So naturally. Because he had it. He had it. And the other thing that they said was that only God could give life. He was the origin of life and the maker of life. People, we can try and extend it. We can try and cryonics and all these other things uh, to do with it. But only God can give, forgive life. But you know the amazing thing? The Lord Jesus comes along and he says, I'll give you life. <laughs> he says, come to me and you'll have life. You'll have abundant life. He goes around and he says, in fact, I am the life. And he said, just to demonstrate to you that I have life, I'll raise the dead. Because <laughs> such is his life when it touches death. Death disappears, dissolves. Only God can forgive, can give life. And Jesus has it in abundance. Thank God. Thank God. And then the last thing was, in the Jewish mind, only God can judge Ultimately. And the reason for that is, in order that our judgment or justice would be perfect, you have to be all wise, you have to be all knowing, and you have to understand attitude as well as actions. To judge. We have a court system. It's a good court system in many ways. We have magistrate's court, crown court, uh, court of appeal. Uh, then we have a supreme court. And then the Supreme Court, only the very best judges in the land sit on it, who have almost an impeccable record. But even in the Supreme Court from time to time, they've said there must be a retrial because there was information we did not have at our disposal. There was something we didn't understand. Consequently, our judgment was unsafe and unsound. And that's why the Jews said, only God, who's omniscient and all-wise and all-knowing, can judge. What did Jesus say? All judgment has been committed to me. Who is he? God in the flesh. God in the flesh. I'll turn over to the last page. <laughs> but I can imagine, you know, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
I could take one of you down to the main street in Leamington Spa and stop a person. And we could say to the person, Jesus is the Christ, he's the son of the living God. Not to do. And they would say, these are not cases. Or shrug your shoulders and walk away. Doesn't mean anything. We don't see anything in that. We don't see the significance. And we'll leave three words with you and then comment briefly on them. The first one that matters because of authority. Authority. You know, if you ask someone to do anything today, you know the first thing they say? Is they say, who says so? <laughs> Have your right to say it. In the church in Pelsall, we used to have coffee mornings and tea evenings when members would invite friends, family, and neighbors into the house and would very often share some aspect of the Christian gospel. And we'd always encourage people to express their opinions or even their doubts and difficulties. I remember one occasion, there was a lady with really brilliant gold hair, really striking. In fact, she was quite serene the way, way, way she was. But while I was speaking, I guess she, we weren't on the same page. Let's put it that way. And so when I gave the opportunity, anyone like to say anything? She said to me, well, this is the way I see it. This is my understanding. This is how I perceive it. And it was contrary to what I was saying. I said, would you mind repeating that? And she said, this is the way I see it. This is my understanding. This is my perception. I said, would you mind repeating that? And she looked at me, and I could see her mind. I know he's Irish, but he can't be that stupid. Surely not. I said, indulge me. And she repeated it. I said, can I build a little scenario for you? Say tomorrow morning you woke up and you had a pain in your head. You've got a headache. And you think, oh, I'll have a paracetamol or something. And you'll take it. You spoke to the neighbor, and the neighbor says, oh, oh, everybody's got it. There's a lot of it about today. You go to the doctor, and the doctor says, hmm, I, I, I think we need this investigator. I'm not quite sure. You go and you see the consultant. He takes the scans, x-rays, blood tests. And then he calls you into his office. And he says to you, so-and-so, I want to tell you, You've got a brain tumor, but it's operable. I said, who do you believe? Do you believe your self-diagnosis, what, what you've thought about it? Do you believe your neighbor? Do you believe the doctor who's not sure? Or do you believe the consultant? She said, don't be stupid. You believe the consultant. He knows. I said, exactly. If Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God revealed in the flesh, he knows. Now, being Irish, we like to turn the screw if we get a chance, you know. <laughs> and, uh, so I did amplify things a little bit. I said, Jesus said that out from the heart proceeds envies and jealousies and murders and all other things when they pollute the whole person. I didn't say it, he said it. Jesus said, unless you're born again, unless you have new life, in you. You won't enter the kingdom. I didn't say it. He said it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There aren't any alternatives. I didn't say it. He said it. I said, so now you have a choice. You can believe yourself. And I said, do you ever get things wrong? He said, nobody's uh, infallible. 
I said, so you can believe your fallible self or trust in the words of the Son of God. That's, what you can. That's your choice. I wonder what you're trusting this evening. Your own ideas, your own thoughts, or what Christ is saying. Two more words. Not only is authority, it's ability. You've been so patient this evening. I think I'll give every one of you £10,000. Not one amen, if you believe it. Perhaps you've seen my Barclays bank accounts. But say the door opened and a Mr. Elon Musk walked in. And he said, I'll give all of you £10,000. He could do that out of his pocket money, couldn't he? It's not what's said. It's whether the person has the ability. And I can tell you, Christ has the ability. He can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or even imagine. There's wonderful things he has said he will do for us, and he can do for us, and he will do for us. And he's able. And then lastly, the adequacy of his death. Sometimes I used to go into stick form colleges or speak at CUs. And one of the things he used to say to me was, he said, look, what's possible connection is there between one person dying on a cross 2,000 years ago and us now two centuries later? What has that got to do with us? How could one person dying affect us in our eternal destiny? I said, the Bible doesn't say just one person died. Was it September the 9th last year? Our dear Queen Elizabeth died. Half past one, I think it was. Many other people died that day. But it didn't influence the nation the way her death did. Why was that? Because of her dignity. Because of her fidelity to, to, to her her reign because of her love for her people that's what made its difference it wasn't just one person it was the Lord of glory who was hanging on that cross it was the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us you know my home is Northern Ireland the second city is Londonderry. And outside the city there's a hill. And the bishop's wife of Londonderry in the 19th century, she wrote a hymn, thinking of that hill. And, and on it she saw the cross. And she said, there was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. She could have equally written, there was none other great enough to pay the price of sin. And because of the dignity, the glory, the majesty of his being, that death and that cross is more than sufficient for the needs of every repentant sinner to be forgiven and be taken to heaven. That's the wonder. 
You know when the Lord said, what about you? He used a plural, but it was eyeball to eyeball stuff. And if he was here this evening, in body, I can imagine him looking at each one of us. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Can you say from your heart, not just words, but from deep down in your heart, Lord, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God. You feel like Thomas, only place for you is on your knees and saying, my Lord and my God. Can you say that? If not, pray God that you will. Because one day, whether you like it or not, you will stand before him and you will have to bow the knee then and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. But oh, the joy of doing it now. Blessed are you, Peter. Blessed are those who are not offended because of me. Oh, the blessed.